This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We've been going through this series on what it means to walk through, what it means to have a kingdom mindset, what it means to be this, embody this kingdom ethos, as we've talked about last week. What does it mean to uh, have God's heart on all these matters? What does it mean to see things the way God sees them? And so we've been walking through the first, the most popular sermon Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we talked about uh, how is it possible that acknowledging your spiritual brokenness actually leads to real blessedness? How is it possible that that is a blessing? We talked about this principle, this upside-down nature of God's kingdom. The things that you think ought to exalt you are the very opposite. The things you think it takes to be exalted is the very opposite, right? To go up means to actually go down first, to acknowledge all the ways we don't have what we Uh, need, the ways we are inadequate to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves. And so we talked about like this, this sense in which everything is opposite, this upside down nature. And this next beatitude we're going to talk about is no exception. But I'll start with this. One of the most famous things that we all know here in this country, uh, something that embodies what our values are, not bad values, not something that is negative or, or even reprehensible. But if you were to sum up the things that we value, the things that we protect as a nature, as a nation, it could be summed up here. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed with what? Certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that third one, again, none of these things are bad things. None of these things are wrong. But that third one is one you could say, at least now in this culture, and I would say cultures that preceded us, index that third value higher than almost anything else. The pursuit of happiness. This idea that the number one goal, the thing that should drive any and everything that I do, is how happy a thing makes me. And so when that that value is on display, there's this, even in these stirring words in the opening of the Declaration of Independence, that third inalienable right has become a passion for many. So, So while the pursuit of happiness is very important, it's become a mania. Like everything that I do is going to be rooted in how happy I am. And everything I have to do means if, if my number one goal is to be happy, then the corollary there is, I have to ensure that I avoid any degree of unhappiness. I've got to do everything in my power to avoid anything that might be unsettling, anything that might make me feel bad. Because feeling bad must mean something's bad, right? And feeling good must mean something's always good. So often, being happy by itself, just for the sake of being happy, is the exclusive reason why we choose to do any number of things. Hear me, nothing's wrong. Actually, you should be doing things that it's not wrong to do things that make you happy, but if that's the exclusive reason why, then you will do unhealthy things that make you happy. You'll engage in relationships that are unhealthy, but you're happy. So happiness can't be the number one goal. It's a factor. It's kind of a balancing test, and you balance things out between things that make me happy, but also things that make God happy things that are valuable, things that are good for me. So when everything is rooted in happiness, industries follow suit. All of our industries are rooted on this. They're based on this passion for pleasure. All of our uh, uh, avenues of entertainment, recreation, etc. And listen, we've never had more opportunity to indulge our happiness than now. I mean, every single thing you could ever want is at your fingertips. Anything you'd ever want to see 
is at your fingertips. And again, this isn't railing against the fact that people want to be happy. The question is, at what cost? Does it mean that our goal then is to avoid anything that could potentially bring some sort of pain, some sort of sorrow? Because that really seems to be the, 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 the golden life that's presented. You can have a life free of pain, free of sorrow, free of heartbreak, do everything possible to avoid mourning. And yet, Jesus says something different. We talked about it before, that sonic boom that we talked about that happens uh, when the sound barrier was broken and what it means when uh, you're flying in the plane and then what you used to do to go up, you have to do the opposite. The things that normally would make you go down are the things that now make you go up. This is one of those things that just do not make sense. L listen to this real quick. I mean, it's a quick verse. Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But how? <laughs> Let's just be real. How? Nothing else works that way, right? Again, if you, if you weren't here with us last week, we talked about the difference between blessedness here in this scripture and what we think of as being happy. They're not the same. So don't, if you see sometimes people mistranslate and you think it means happy are those or those will be happy if X, Y, and Z happen. It's not what this is, right? We talked about blessedness as this, this ability to have a deep, abiding, residual joy regardless of your circumstances. So it has nothing to do with how happy you are in the moment, right? But still, how is it possible then that in order for me to have a deep, abiding sense of joy, despite circumstances, why would mourning get me there? Why would being sad or sorrow get me there? This is the antithesis of everything we've been taught about our culture. This is opposite of what we're taught is just conventional wisdom. I mean, Jesus turns everything upside down by saying, Happy are the unhappy? Joyful are the unhappy? What a paradox. The old Christian thinker G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He says, a paradox is truth standing on its side, clamoring for your attention. Truth that's on its side, clamoring for your attention. There's something here that seems so off, but yet you can't, you have to pay attention. You have to get drawn in. How is it possible? Truth, he actually said truth standing on its head, clamoring for attention. How is that upside down truth even true? It's opposite of everything that we know. In many ways, when you read through these Beatitudes, a lot of people are like, man, none of this sounds good to me. These virtues sound more like vices. That is, this, why would I want to sign up for that? Give me some kind of a faith construction that shows me how to be happy. Give me something that helps me anesthetize myself from having to mourn. Because that's what I thought this was supposed to be about. I thought all the ways that I'm hurting and all the ways that I'm sad, I thought that this was supposed to be this healing salve that's going to keep me from ever having to feel that again. That's the Christianity I thought I was here for. So how can Jesus say something so opposite? How? If we're supposed to enjoy, happiness isn't a, isn't a bad thing. So these virtues of the Beatitudes, they can seem like these vices, and yet, Ecclesiastes says, the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Whoa. Wait a minute, but I, pleasure, again, pleasure, nothing wrong with pleasure. God made us to enjoy pleasure, so, so why would that be a bad thing? The, 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 the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. What that tells us, at least, it has to mean this. It has to mean that the recreation craze of our culture is not harmless. It's not harmless. It's, it's not like a, a victimless situation. If we are completely overtaken by our desire to just feel good, there are any number of compromises that we will make. Blessed are those that mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it a few times, but what I think Jesus is going to show us here is that the, the highest joy occurs on the road of deepest sorrow. The greatest joy occurs on the road of our deepest sorrow. So in walking through this, what does this mean? Let's talk a little bit about how it's possible <clears throat> for us to engage in this idea of being blessed through mourning. We have to start with, what is this mourning? The first thing you have to know is this kind of mourning that Jesus is referring to, it's not a self-centered mourning. It's not a you-centered mourning. And let me, let me explain what I mean. He says, blessed are they that mourn. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This is important because many folks, especially throughout Christian history, have taken this to mean then that there's a more of a blessing for you to just be cheerless. There are some folks who, they, you know, walking with Jesus simply means just learning how to just keep walking with that limp and letting everybody know how hard things are all the time, as if that's a badge of your holiness and your maturity in Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Don't, don't get me wrong. There are times in our life where we're dealing with a lot. We have to learn how to walk with that limp sometimes. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not giving this idea this, to, to give us this idea that says, blessed are the cheerless, blessed are the, the weepy people. He's not saying blessed. Jesus isn't saying that the best character in Winnie the Pooh is Eeyore. And, and it's, it's so important that we have to get this because you ever met somebody who they love Jesus, they're Christian, but every time you're around them, somehow they can suck the energy out of the room like they, they, you know that they love Jesus. They say they love Jesus. They follow Jesus. They serve Jesus. Yet everybody else can be happy and joyous. And there's just weird energy that they just can't quite engage the happiness of the moment, the joy of the moment. There's, in some ways, I believe there's a, a, a messed up way that some of our faiths have been shaped that says there's got to be some kind of sorrow all the time in order to be close to Jesus. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not giving us this idea that we're supposed to be uh, kind of like, um, if you ever read C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair, there's a character that, uh, named Puddlegum. And Puddlegum was this character who had spent so much time, an endless rainfall. He was kind of this half frog-like character. And he's been in all this rainfall all the time. So all he is is just waiting for the next rain. Just constantly, uh, his, his, he had this real phrase that he would say his motto was always uh, every, what was it? Uh, every silver lining has a rain cloud somewhere. You see somebody who just can never, ever get to a place where when things are joyous, they can't join the joy. There's, well, something else is going to happen. Oh, I can't. Listen, that's not what Jesus is saying. So if your Christianity looks like this and you kind of just, Wave it off because you're like, this is just a part of the Christian walk, and this is just what it is, and this is how this is not what Jesus is talking about. This is not what, and, and it's important because you're not supposed to be the one that's just always expecting the worst from life. This isn't somebody who is just pessimistic and cynical all the time. This is not the kind of posture that Jesus describes as blessed. So don't get that twisted. This is a serious person but not a sullen person, a sorrowful person, but not a somber person. Mourning, not moping. So, so it's important that we talk about what this kind of mourning isn't first, because you might feel like you're just walking in what God has called you, and that is not what he has called you to. Someone who is naturally grim or gloomy or morose or moody, this isn't a depressive kind of melancholy that that frequently characterizes people who are more absorbed with themselves. See, this is the hard part. Many times, if you find yourself in that place, and you never know that you're that person, by the way. You need some people around you. You need to go, just everybody ask yourself the question. When I'm in the room and people are happy about something, how often am I able to engage the happiness with them? Because if you are honest with yourself and the answer is not very often, Everybody else knows the energy you're sucking but you. And that is one of those things that honestly does not create really safe community. 
It doesn't make people feel like they can engage really well. And you might not even know it because you just think, well, this is just part of my walk. And this is just part of what it means to follow Jesus. And I've been a Christian for 40, 50, 60 years. This is just how I've always done it. And by the way, blessed are they that mourn. So there. You're getting it twisted. This morning is not even uh, mere, not mere, but not just bereavement or sorrow over the death of a loved one. That's really important too. There are other passages for that. This is not the one. This is not about, and many times people have used this passage to be like, well, you're going through a really hard time. You lost that job. You didn't get that relationship that you wanted. Things didn't work out the way that you planned and you are mourning and understandably so. But this promise has nothing to do with that. This is not about every time I'm sad, God promises to comfort this specific thing. There are places we can go to talk about what it means for God to be close to the brokenhearted. We can talk about that, but this is not that. This is something else. Understand, this kind of mourning is not just a self-centered mourning. Remember last week, we talked again about this blessed are the poor in spirit, this kingdom. Remember what he said here, blessed. He didn't just say blessed are the poor in materials. Wasn't talking about material poverty there. Again, other passages for that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All of these beatitudes are something spiritual first. And they all are linked together. They rest one upon the other. Each one is connected to the next. So let's just think about this logically. There is a sequential nature to this, these beatitudes. It starts with this idea, this acknowledgement of our spiritual brokenness, the intellectual part, right? Then this next part is the emotional reaction to that acknowledgement. What are we saying here? If I truly have begun to acknowledge the ways in which I fall short, I acknowledge the ways in which I the, the ways in which my own sin nature is apparent, it should move me to a place of mourning. What is the last, when is the last time you've mourned something about you? Honestly, this isn't about self-flagellation. This isn't about finding a way to beat ourselves up and find reasons to just tear ourselves down. We're not saying that. But when is the last time that you saw your heart and your sin the way God sees it. Because it's not enough. Listen, there are some people, last week's sermon, yes, acknowledging brokenness. Got it. Absolutely. I need to know that. You know, there are a lot of people who actually can do that first thing. There are a lot of people that will say, I know I messed up. Sometimes people will say things like, I see this now, I know it because I've been in a lot of counseling with a lot of y'all. and We've all had issues. Here's what often happens. When people are in situations where something has gone wrong, the thing that people will do often is say, I mean, I know, yeah, I just said, I take, I, take, I take responsibility for that. What does that mean? I know I did that. I take responsibility for that. All you're doing is just acknowledging you did it. That's not actually taking responsibility, by the way. Just acknowledging you did something. That's the acknowledging part, right? But what about the next part? Once you acknowledge you did it, what does it move you to feel? If you're in a relationship with someone and, 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 and they have hurt you, is it enough for them to go, I know that I hurt you. Now let's keep it moving. Would that ever be enough? It, it couldn't be. Yet, if you just stop at the acknowledgement part, you have not gotten yet to the rest of what God's kingdom is about. This is more than just the acknowledgement. That's a huge part. The acknowledgement brings real blessedness. And it should, because that you can't even know where the next move is. You don't know how desperate you are for God until you realize how inadequate you are for yourself. So when you know that, that's important. Now, what does that mean to know that? That means I'm acknowledging all the ways I fall short. I acknowledge all the ways I've grieved the heart of God. The things I've said, the things I haven't said, the things I've done, the things I haven't done, the things I feel, the things I don't feel. All of those things are things that should be moving us on some level. So if you're not moved in that way, either A, there's no acknowledgement, or B, something else is holding us from, and I suspect specifically in our culture, we already have this built-in thing of, no, 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 that makes me feel bad. Let me do something else. 
I don't want to think too much about this because I feel bad. I'm kind of worried about digging a little bit deeper into this because I might find out some things that I don't want to have to deal with. I don't want to have to acknowledge. So if you don't feel this, have you truly seen yourself as honestly as God does? Think about a time you were really, really hurt by someone. Think about a time that you have just really been let down, maybe betrayed, hurt really badly. And think about if they attempted to apologize in this cursory, desultory, superficial way that, that conveyed uh, that the offense just wasn't really a big deal, right? The whole, listen, I get it, I did that, but no one's perfect, right? Then you may not say that, someone may not say that, but the acknowledgement without the emotional piece, that's how it feels. Yeah, I did that. Listen, what do you, I'm not perfect. I all got my stuff. You got your issues, I got mine. We do the whole deflection and, and the, we start to place that on the other person. Well, you know, you got your stuff too. How do you feel after that? Do you feel like that was appropriate? Do you feel like that was adequate? They've hurt you. You've been legitimately uh, betrayed. And they respond with this kind of flippant acknowledgement of the thing, but no real emotional connection to it. Did you feel better? No, you didn't feel better. Why? Because there was no emotional restitution. There's no emotional restitution. So you're left with, okay, you, you, you acknowledge that a thing happened and you've said this, but the moment the person says, yeah, but I get that, all right, that's all right. Listen, we're all messed up. I'll keep it moving and I'll try to do better next time. And that's it. There is no emotional restitution. So you're left with this major gap. Oh, he, he, really, he, he, really, he really treated that too lightly. She dismissed that far too quickly. I guess they, I'm not going to get this emotional restitution here. And now my wounds are left untreated. You see, having this, you realize that these beatitudes, they're going to build. You're going to see how they build on each other. I, I don't want to talk about it too much now, but one of the things that we're going to come back to is this piece leads to the peacemaking piece that we're going to get to later. The reason why you often don't have real reconciliation with other people is because one or both, A, did not acknowledge the spiritual brokenness that was really at play when said thing happened, and B, there was not an, any emotional restitution for the damage that was caused. This is why people have to understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness takes one, that's it. Reconciliation takes two. You cannot have reconciliation when one side has not not only acknowledge the brokenness that may have caused the fissure, but then there is no real emotional reaction and emotional responsibility and restitution for the fissure. You can't do that. So, so often, especially in the church, we like to just put people right back together like magnets. Just, just, just do it. Just, just be there. And somehow, through spiritual osmosis, things will just work out. Because we love the ceremonial nature of the thing of people being together. <clears throat> but we don't, <clears throat> we don't seem to care about the foundation that needs to be true. So when you think about what it means, when we think about what it means to deal with the emotional aspect, this is not just emotional manipulation, right? The, the, the sorrow, this is sorrow on the part of an offender that is proportional to the grief of the offended. The sorrow, your sorrow needs to be proportional. So when you think about that with each other, that's one thing. How do we deal with that with, with God? A sorrow that understands the seriousness of the offense and is brokenhearted for doing it. See, without this repentance, there can never be reconciliation. This is something we have to always go back to. And frankly, as Christians, there is no conversion without this type of conviction. There is no understanding that I desperately need something outside of myself if I don't really come to that acknowledgement. I can't. If I don't have that understanding, I don't even know to, to reach out for anything else. I don't even know that I need, or I might know and just completely bypass it. So first, this morning is not self-centered. Second, this morning is gospel 
focused. So again, it's not a mourning over the loss of a loved one. It's a mourning of the loss of your innocence. It's a mourning, even in that moment, in that moment I can see that there's a degree of my own heart that was not innocent in the matter. When is the last time that you mourned over that? You know, the re, the, one of the ways that you can know how your, how your mourning looks is basically, maybe the better question is, when is the last time you've had to repent to someone else? And what did that look like for you? Can you think of the last time that you had to formally go and repent to someone? Because really, that's one of the only litmus tests you really have for your mourning. Outside of that, everything's going to be subjective. I felt pretty mournful about that. One of the things that we all do, we can all fall into this, is we'll communicate mourning. Maybe to, if there was something I mourned, I'll tell somebody else about it. I was really mourned. I was mournful about that thing about me over here. But the way that you really know when people are mourning is how they repent to each other. The way we repent to one another. One of the things that we ask often in our membership classes and of elders is, what does that two-step dance of faith and repentance look like for you? When is, what does repentance have to look like for you? This isn't about a gotcha or tell me about the dirtiest things and the hardest things in your life. I just get off on the salacious details. Yay, that's not what this is. This is walk me through on a humility level. What does it look like? Not if, but when you fail at something and it harms someone and you've got to engage in repentance. What does that look like for you? If you struggle coming up with that answer, we may not be as humble as we think we are. And we may not be as broken as we think we are. This morning is gospel focused. It's more than the morning over the loss of a loved one. It's mourning the loss of your innocence. It's mourning the loss of your righteousness. This person that Jesus is talking about, they don't ignore their sin by amusing themselves to death with endless recreation and entertainment. That's not how mourning looks. There's a place to be able to just veg, relax, all of that. I'm not saying that that is wrong, but the mature mourning, the mature Christian, it doesn't stop there. You don't just find ways to avoid and evade mourning. Because there's no blessing if that's there, if that's the case. This is a person who doesn't deflect or obfuscate their sin by focusing on their better qualities. Listen, I know that I did this, but you didn't even bring up the other really good things I did the other day, so you're not grateful. Because this is, honestly, when you get into that evasive maneuver, it is really easy to just go find all the things that you know are good about you. Point that out. You know, I noticed that you brought these things up, but you didn't bring up X, Y, and Z. Why, why didn't you bring up those things? Because those weren't the things that caused the pain. It's the other thing that caused the pain. And we're here to talk about the thing that caused the pain. This person moves through these sequential beatitudes. And here's what happens. When you move through each one of these beatitudes in order, you acknowledge, you see your sin, and then you begin to be broken over your sin. And it happens, the more mature you become, the more aware you are of the areas of your heart that are far from God. The more you study, the more you get into the Word, the more you get closer to God, you start realizing, man, I, man, I'm I missed the mark there. I see where I'm missing the mark there. The, the more I learn about what the mark should look like, the more aware I am that I miss it. If it looks different for you, and it's like, the more that I learn about the, 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 the way the mark looks, the more proud I am of hitting it. If that's where you are, this is not you. That's not the kingdom mentality. The more you become in, in, in uh, understanding of who God is and where we are, we see more of our sin. We mourn our sin. We hate it in all of its manifestations. We think about what we say and what we don't say. We mourn what we might think or what we might not think. We, we mourn what we're feeling or what we don't necessarily feel. We mourn what we do and what we don't do. This is what Paul meant when he said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Has that ever sounded like you? Have you been able, just been able to be like, man, I know that this sin thing in my heart is present. 
Are you mindful of your spiritual poverty? So much so that it affects you. Have you ever been just emotionally broken over your sin? And please, let me qualify that. Not emotionally broken by the consequences of your sin. But are you emotionally broken over the sin itself? Sometimes we can get to that place where we're like, you know what? I, I feel so bad and I'm really, really sorry. Why? Well, look at everything I lost. I had to deal with so many things because of what I did. And so I, I'm sorry. That's true. That's a very honest reaction and understandable. But hopefully the mourning goes deeper than that. It's not just I'm so sorry because of what I lost. I'm so sorry about what I've caused. I'm so sorry by the ways in which I'm so far removed from where God's heart is on this issue. I know how much this wounds the heart of God. Yes, I know this wounded my husband. I know this wounded my wife. I know this wounded my sister, my brother, my cousin, my friend, my child. And I am broken over that. And I am broken over all the ways that that has wounded God's heart. This is what you see when you look at many of the authors of Scripture. You see Paul again in Romans 7, verses 15 through 20. He puts it this way. He says, I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one that does it, but sin that lives within me. Think about that. This, there's a lot of different things. And listen, none of these biblical authors were, were uh, pictures of perfection, and there were all kinds of issues in their lives. There were all kinds of questions about what they thought and what they felt. But it, here you have somebody who is responsible for the majority of the New Testament churches planting someone who is an authority on issues of theology in these circles. When they've got issues, they're trying to figure out what to do. How do we please God more? How do we understand what he expects of us? How do we live lives that comport with God's heart? They wrote Paul. <clears throat> Two-thirds of the New Testament are letters that Paul wrote to churches who needed help. So here, this if there ever is a person who's been walking with God imperfectly, if there ever was a person that could come in and have that kind of relationship that you might think is close with God, why is it that the more he walks with God, the way that he sees himself changes? The way that he sees himself is not this heightened, man, I am really one of God's anointed. Man, God, God must really like me. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at the churches I've planted. Look at all these gifts that I have. They're going to write a lot of books about me. That's not at all where he goes. In other, instead, he says things like, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul grieving over the gap between what he is and what he ought to be. He sees what God has called him to, and he's wrestling with all the things that are still true within him, and it makes him mourn. So I ask again, does this sound like you? Does this sound like you? Have we found ourselves in a place of mourning? <clears throat> Have you ever felt this way, or do you embrace an unwillingness to mourn? I mean, why would you mourn over sin? Because as a Christian, we understand what that sin costs. We mourn because the holiness of God is assaulted by sin that offends God's nature. We mourn that. It's an assault on his very nature. You mourn because the righteousness of God is outraged by the exercise of sin and the very universe of God that governs it. So you mourn because you know your sins were piled upon Jesus Christ as he was on the cross. You mourn because it's the demeanor of all kingdom citizens. In other words, if you are in the kingdom, you can't not mourn. 
that should, that should jar us. You can't be in the kingdom and not mourn. You can't get to a place where you just are like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. The, the morning part, I, the rest of the Bible, I like the morning part. Eh, that's not for me. I'm, I, I like to be positive. This isn't a self-centered morning. This is not a morning that's on behalf of yourself. The Christian mourns because of who God is. What sin demanded of Jesus. Jesus, who did not regard his equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus, becoming a bondservant so that he might die this horrible, gruesome death. This is a gospel-focused morning. And it doesn't stop. Every single day you become more aware of your sin, you will mourn. And the greater your emotional reaction to your sin, the greater your intensity of your appreciation for the gospel. The more you begin to realize, wow, this really did separate. Man, that makes me so thankful for grace. Man, that makes me so thankful that Jesus stepped in in the places and ways that I could not step. I'm so, I'm overwhelmed. This is what makes grace amazing. It's not just amazing because I got something good or some good material thing. It's amazing because the gap was closed. It's amazing because if I've been mourning just how far from God I am on some level, then I can't help but to be so thankful. Something that drives us into the arms of Jesus and allowed us to see his glory, the greatness and majesty of the gospel. Why am I saying this? Because if you just stop with the mourning part, People can be like, man, this kind of theology, this, this just makes us be nothing but despair. I mean, I, if I just got to sit and think about just how messed up I am, I got, I got family members to do that for me. Like, I don't need to do that all the time. And, and that's the, the, the thing is, this is why this kind of mourning should never plunge you into despair over sin. In other words, we don't take our sin too lightly, right? The mechanical apologies without emotional restitution. Nor do we take our sins too heavily, believing that there is some redeeming value to our emotional suffering. We don't do either one of those. We see our sins in the light of the gospel. We see our sins and says, man, I realize, I, I realize how far away this thing is, but it doesn't lead me into this place of despondency because I realize I'm never, there's a freedom in that I know I can't fix this myself, but I'm able to run to the one who can. And I'm able to run to the one who is promised, not only promised, but demonstrated in his life and his death and his resurrection that the work that needs to be done to close the gap is finished. That's where the joy comes. So we see our sin in the light of the gospel. Do you mourn over sin? The deepest kind of sorrow. This is the ethos of God's kingdom. It's not mourning for mourning's sake. It's not uh, this idea of, of uh, finding, just having a reason just to feel bad. It's a mourning that actually leads us somewhere. So you shouldn't just be in a place where you're just mourning and there's no real destination. Your mourning should always have a destination every time. So if you get into rhythms of just mourning without any real place of landing, there's something unhealthy about that. Your mourning should lead you somewhere. Where does it lead you? Where does it Take us. Remember that whole thing we said about truth, standing on his head, calling for attention? How? How does this do that? This warning is the pathway to this inexpressible type of joy. You say, what do you mean? How does that bring some kind of joy at all? This morning isn't self-centered. It isn't gospel. It's gospel-centered. But here's what Jesus says. This morning will be God-blessed. For they will be comforted. They. There's an exclusive nature of the they. Then just, it's not everybody's going to be comforted. The ones who acknowledge their sin and mourn their sin, they will be comforted. They will be comforted. There's the, the passive voice is used here. They will be comforted. So the indication is that these people who are mourning, they don't comfort themselves. They're going to have to receive comfort from some other place. So if your best bet to take care of yourself is you, you're missing a blessing. 
If every time you are in a place of mourning, you think about whatever creature comfort you're going to go to just to make yourself feel better, you're actually selling yourself short. You're missing the greater blessing. Many times, uh, a lot of your uh, Greek scholars will call this a divine passive. It's used whenever the doer of the action is God himself. They easily could have translated it, for God will comfort you. You are in a place of mourning, mourning your sin. You will never have to do that indefinitely, and you will never have to do that without a destination. That mourning should lead you to a deep comfort that only the gospel can bring. So watch yourself. When you find yourself mourning, it should be a morning that the truth of the gospel can bring comfort. Beyond just me coming up and or somebody patting you, patting you on the back, listen, you're still good enough. Listen, don't think about that. Think, let me point you to some really good things that you've done. That's good friendship, and there's times we do that for each other. But ultimately, if you're mourning your sin, I'm not talking about mourning other things, mourning hard things that have happened, mourning bereaving, all those things are vitally important. And scriptures tell us we need to mourn with those who mourn, right? So that's very important. But this is the kind of mourning that if anything other than the gospel brings you more comfort, there's a danger. There's something that's, that's missing. We should be anybody in this kingdom, this kingdom mindset, anybody who finds themselves in this place, who's, if you've experienced the gospel, there is a genuine joy, a genuine blessedness, regardless of circumstance, because there's this picture that Jesus is giving to his audience, this idea that people can actually say, my sin has been taken away, never to be brought up against me. I have forgiveness, come what may. This is why the brother of Jesus said this, James said, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy turned into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, you might go, now, why does James want to make me miserable? That wouldn't be the first verse you just give somebody if you're trying to tell them about Jesus. Come be a Christian, you could be miserable. Some people's faith, that is how it works, but, but that's not at all what Jesus is calling us to. But when you get into the deeper parts of the spiritual work that has to happen, the spiritual work that has to happen in order to be changed to look and love more like Jesus does, that should happen. James is not trying to make any of us miserable. He's saying that in God's economy, heartfelt repentance is the only path to forgiveness. It's the only path to being made right. So when you, when, when you see this, Paul said, right, we, we've talked on this uh, topic or this sermon or this passage of Scripture so many times. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, godly grief leads to repentance that leads to salvation. So when you put everything together that we've just seen, God will comfort those who mourn over sin. God will exalt those who mourn over sin. God will save those who mourn over sin. Do you see how, what the, where the blessing is there? So what's the paradox? What's the truth? The standing on its head is this. We've already said it. The greatest joy is found through our deepest sorrow. And this is why it's so hard so, so often for us to find happiness. It's not that people don't know that there are problems within. A lot of people are able to discern on some level something's not right. We may not have the language. We may not know why certain things don't seem to work out in, in, in ourselves. And we can, maybe even something goes wrong, a relationship goes wrong. And we go back and we kind of do the postmortem on what happened. And we can start to see, man, I really, I can see some things that I did here. I can see some things that, that I did that might have precipitated X, Y, or Z. There are people who are able to see that or discern it on some level, but they don't know what to do about it. And since I don't know what to do about it, I might as well just do what I can to avoid it. That becomes exhausting because you find yourself in these same rhythms and these same cycles. And listen, just for you, I don't know all the things that every person has dealt with, but if there is a recurring theme that seems to come up for you with other people, if people have felt a thing regularly around this, there might be something there. There might be something to look at. Everybody can't be wrong that this is something that people are seeing. 
and somebody's lovingly trying to bring something about. But if you are seeing the same things happen, you might be inclined to go, I, I, I just don't want to deal with it. I don't know what to do. So let me avoid my sin or let me hide my sin or let me deny my sin so that I can further enjoy my sin. This is what it looks like to live without grace. This is what it looks like to live without grace. You think that you're actually giving yourself grace by not having to mourn, but you're actually denying the grace that will keep you from having to be exhausted all the time in this exercise. One theologian puts it this way. He said, the saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grieving over sin, because that's a heart without grace. A heart that will not mourn is a heart that is completely devoid of the grace of God. Those who mourn over sin are comforted because those who mourn over their sin find reconciliation with God. This is what they mean. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So you might go, wait a minute, this, this sounds like a, a future thing. Shall, how was that even, so how long do I have to wait for this comfort? That language is there, like how long do I have to wait? Let me just remind you really quickly in the book of Isaiah. If you just remember, I won't even read it. If you go back through the book of Isaiah, you see the first 39 chapters are all the ways that God is basically letting the children of Israel know all the things that they have to deal with that are coming because of their wickedness and their hard-heartedness and the ways that they had rebelled against God. Chastisement, leading them into national exile. Then you get to chapter 40, and he starts to announce a second exodus that will be coming, and he starts describing what will be coming. You get to chapter 61, 60 and 61, and you see God promising this coming Messiah, this Messiah that's going to accomplish the very thing whose message would be this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted to comfort all who mourn. To comfort. These were the gifts that the Messiah was coming. So fast forward. It wasn't a shock to see Joseph and Mary and their child who met Simeon, this old man who's waiting in the temple just to see the Messiah before he dies. And he sees him and he goes, my comfort and my consolation is here. I can die now. It's not a shock that when that child grew up, he would eventually say, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is life, is light. This is the comfort. This is the new exodus that's found in Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of his ministry, think about this. Everything that we just read right now, you mean... Jesus goes, when he's 12, 13 years old, he's going to the temple, his parents can't find him. He gets to the temple, and, and they finally find him at the temple. What is he reading? That same chapter in Isaiah, promising that comfort. And he reads the passage, and there he's, he's expounding and teaching with power and authority they couldn't even understand in a 12 or 13-year-old boy. And he begins to, to expound on it. And after he's done, he says, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, your comfort is here. Your comfort has arrived. This trajectory of comfort that began with the first coming of Jesus, we are living into that now. So this is the surprising upside-down nature of God's kingdom. The greatest joy is found in our deepest sorrow. You might be thinking, some of us might be thinking, I think I get this. Daryl, I think I see some of this, but this kind of grieving sounds like a lot. I mean, if I do the digging that I'm supposed to do, there's some heavy things. There, there are things that maybe I just I haven't done or things I've done. I've, I've said so much already or I haven't said enough. It's, it's impossible to put all that toothpaste back in the tube. I've got so many things that just make me feel like I'm, I'm beyond what real salvation should even look like. I don't know how I could feel worthy of this kind of grace. There's a group that, that wrote a song about 20 years ago, and they have this song lyric that I've always loved. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. 
The only thing this requires is for you to know and feel your need of him. Blessed are they who mourn. They will be comforted. Our greatest joy comes through the deepest sorrow, this truth that stands on its head calling for your attention. Come to the one who comforts the mourning heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you you do invite us to do something that feels so counterintuitive. You invite us to engage something that just doesn't make sense on a conventional level. And yet, God, if we're honest, these are the reasons why these are so hard for us to hold and so hard for us to understand is, God, we don't want to have to feel bad. We don't want to have to carry heavy things. God, we have so many heavy things in our lives already, things that have nothing to do with us that we have to carry. And so to engage in a voluntary exercise of looking at things within us that are just not put together right, that aren't working right, that, that, that aren't functioning the way that they should. Father, it, it feels like too much. So God, I thank you that you were reminding us that the only way that this feels light is when we realize we no longer have to carry it. God, I pray that you would make all of us aware, remind us, comfort us with this, this truth that we don't have to carry this on our own any longer. We don't have to fake it. We don't have to put on a mask. We don't have to put on a, a costume. We can freely acknowledge and then have the freedom to emotionally engage because we know it has a destination. So take us ultimately to you. Help us to land in the place where only your truth can bring us ultimate comfort. Lord, I pray that you would hold our hand as we go into our deepest sorrow, as you pull us to our greatest joy. We pray and we praise you in Jesus' name. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.